You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Black woman. Beautiful. Powerful. Resilient female of African descent with skin kissed by the sun. Conversation. A talk, especially an informal one, between two or more people in which news and ideas are exchanged. We love being black women. Black women are ambitious. Black women are confident. Black women are diligent. We are tenacious. We walk out of our houses put together. We are many shades and personalities of fabulous. But we as black women don't talk about our dilemmas, current events, and what's going on every day that affects us. So... We created this podcast as a way to laugh together, cry together, and have an open conversation about life as black women. Oh, that's deep. Black Women Conversations. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Johnny. Hey, Melissa. Hey, guys. How are you? <laughs> what have you all been doing this week? This was the last week of my call. I did not take call starting on Tuesday morning. So I have been officially not really working this week. Yay. But you were on call for like Yay. three weeks prior to that though, right? And I was, I was on call for three weeks straight because everybody has either like COVID, their family members have COVID or, um, you know, people are just like sick and tired and about to like walk out on the job. So they need a break. Understood. Well, I hope that you get a break soon. I mean, I guess that technically since Tuesday, but I hope you get like a real break. I'm going to take a real break. There's no hope. <laughs> Word. Understood. Melissa, Are you going on vacation? Where? Where are we going to go? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Melissa, I want to go on vacation. Um, if I had my choice, I would go on vacation. I like to travel. Um, my husband and I were just talking about how we have no vacations in all of 2020. Um, but yeah, I don't want to waste my vacation days. I know that's weird though. I don't want to waste my vacation days to stay home. So I'll probably take like an extended weekend off, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday off Monday, come back to work on Tuesday. I agree. I had to burn some of my PTO. So I was off for two weeks um, and I was just at home. So I took vacations to my backyard, um, to my couch. I laid in <laughs> bed for a little bit longer. Um, it, it really didn't feel like a vacation at all. I gardened. Gardening? I tried, man. So uh, a few days ago, I went fishing for the first time in my life. So what I've been trying to do during the pandemic is to just learn new stuff, do something new. Otherwise, I'll be bored. So we went and at the first spot, I didn't catch anything. And I got scolded for being on my phone and holding the fishing pole. The boo <laughs> scolded you. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. I said, oh, I think I have a bite. And he said, but why are you holding your phone and you don't even look excited? I said, oh, I was trying to stay still. So I froze. <laughs> you got caught in it and froze like boop, phone yes. fishing pole. Yeah. So then we went to a second spot. And after I got over being scolded, I was sitting there and I didn't put my phone out at all. I was like all eyes, ears, hands, everything. And it was getting dark. And I was like, oh, I got a bite. And I was like, then I remembered everything that I had been scolded to do. I stood up, I leaned back, I reeled the fish in, 
And I was like, I don't know if y'all been fishing, but that, that joker was heavy. Like, what I did you waiting. catch? So I, for, for those in the South, I caught an alligator gar. Oh, yeah. Help, <laughs> help me for the one who was raised up north. What is that? So it is a, the size, the one that I caught must have been at least like three pounds. And it has a long mouth similar to an alligator. And it has little sharp teeth. That seems a little scary. It it was very scary because at this point it was dark. And if if you've been fishing, I guess you know, but I I wasn't prepared for the fish to move so violently. Oh, yeah, Um, they're fighting for their lives. (laughs) Those poor fish. Yeah. And it's it's hard to reel them in because they're like working against you. Like they're pulling against you, even if it's like a one pound fish. It's aggressive. It was so aggressive, and I kept reeling it in because in my mind, I thought if I got it to the top of the rod, we would be cool, and we could take the picture that I so desperately wanted. No. (laughs) (laughs) This fish is fighting for its life, Melissa, and you're worried about the photo op. (laughs) Absolutely. Because I was like, look, I got scolded. I'm out here. And then I broke the line, and then it was on the ground, and then they was over there trying to get the hook out and he was trying to get me to help. And I'm, then I started getting bit up by mosquitoes. And I was like, no, no, I don't want the fish. I don't want to cook it. I don't want to clean it. Give it back. I don't want your cook. Like, I want to go in the house. <laughs> I stopped to spray off. Wow, Melissa, you had an event. For, well, how long were you fishing? For one day? Not even a whole, no, not a whole day. Like, maybe in total about two and a half hours. That was a very eventful two and a half hours, Melissa. Yeah, you know, I was... <laughs> I walked away thinking I was, you know, kind of amazing. It's like <laughs> on my first trip. You are kind of amazing. But I think, Nicole, I think we should tell the people who Melissa is. Yeah. Okay. So um, before we get into the timeline, uh, let's make sure we do tell the listeners who Melissa is. Um, so we are here with the fabulous Dr. Melissa Macklin-Rector. Um, she's a double board certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist who intentionally practices in underserved communities of color. She is committed to reducing the stigma of and lack of access to psychiatrists. We love her. She is also a fellow Xavierite. Welcome to the conversation, Dr. Melissa Rector. Hey, Melissa. I I feel like I'm super important because I have super important friends like you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I don't feel that important, though. That sounded really nice. I need to get that red every morning. (laughs) I can make that happen. I can make that happen. (laughs) Okay, guys, let's hop into our timeline. So, Melissa, the reason why we were super excited to have you is because um, July is Minority Mental Health Awareness Month, which we think is super dope. Um, The fact that, obviously, we're highlighting mental health in the black and brown communities is a huge thing because, you know, obviously for so long, it's been a stigma that's placed on black and brown people seeking mental help, I should say. I kind of pause every time I hear someone only talk about mental illness as a way to think of how to improve something negative. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think of mental illness as like your mental state, which is the way you were saying it before, like you could be happy. You can still talk to someone when you feel good. You know what? That's a dope distinction to make. Um, And it's a very positive way of viewing mental health. I think that we should all view it that way. Thanks, Melissa. So let's hop into our timeline. So as we know, it's Minority Mental Health Awareness Month. And mental health has been receiving a lot more attention recently than it has in the past. And some of the 
stories have become quite prominent on our timeline, I would say the most publicized reminders of the importance of being aware of our mental health are the stories of Tamar Braxton and Kanye West. So I'm going to start out with Tamar. We know Tamar from the Braxton Family Values, from Tamar and Vince, and we know her as a singer, but we probably know her most as Tony Braxton's baby sister. Tamar also has um, an up-and-coming show called Get Your Life, scheduled to be released actually today, the same day that we released this episode. So Tamar is also someone who suffers with depression. Um, of which we learn the severity after her most recent alleged suicide attempt on July 17th. So based on what we are seeing in the media and the news and on our timelines, it's clear that there are a number of triggers and stressors that she's currently dealing with, as well as some underlying issues from her, you know, from earlier in her life that she may still be working through. Let me break it down for you. I'm going to go quickly through the timeline surrounding her recent um, alleged suicide attempt and go from there. So on July 17th, the blast reported that Braxton was found unresponsive by her boyfriend, David Adufaso, and he called 911. And I'm going to give a warning that this call may be triggering for some people, but here's the call. Fire paramedic operator 148, what's the address of the emergency? And what's the emergency? Uh, my girlfriend is not responding. Are you with her right now? Yes. How old is she? She's not awake. Okay. She's can you wake her up? Can you shake? Can you shake her and yell at her? Try to wake her up. I'm shaking. Uh, she has a little bit of her eye open. All right, sir. Like I said, we're on the way. Um, I'm going to stay on the line with you. Okay. Uh, she's been drinking. It's like a half a bottle. Uh, uh, <clears throat> she's on medication for depression. I don't know how much. She sent a letter earlier. She, Anyway, just ask him to hurry. I'm sorry, sir. You said she's on. Just ask him to hurry. She's on. She's on medication. She's she's uh, she takes medication, but she gets anxiety. I don't know if she's taking her medication or what. Oh, or if she's. Uh, she was very angry earlier on. <coughs> she has trouble with the network. She just a company she's working with, and they did some things today. And she no 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 way this before. I hope I hope this is not. <sighs> okay. Yeah, when, when they're inside of the same room that you're in, you and I can disconnect. But until then, we have to keep our eye on her breathing, okay? <laughs> so a few days prior, on July 15th, Tamar posted on social media publicly complaining about her network and implying that they were villainizing her. And she compared she and her sisters to the Kardashians, saying that they received 75% less than the Kardashians. I'm not going to go into this because the Kardashians have created an empire and they have more followers than Beyonce. While, on the other hand, the Braxtons combined have fewer followers than Rob himself. So there's that. But I will say this. It speaks to her mental state. The fact that she's comparing apples and oranges with she and her sisters and the Kardashians kind of gives us an idea that her thought processes might be just a little bit off. So let's move on to July 16th. So... July 16th, the night before Tamar's alleged suicide attempt, she supposedly wrote a note to her family. In this letter, it was reported by the blast that she said the following. I am a slave. I do not own my life, my stories, my pictures, my thoughts, or beliefs. I've asked my massa to free me. I am threatened and punished for it. 
The only way I see out is death. I will choose that before I continue to love like this. Please help me. Later that day, um, after this alleged letter, we see Tamar change her name on Twitter to Tamar Slave Braxton. We move on into the following day. So we know that she was having some issues that are clearly evident that are playing out on social media. The following day is when she allegedly tried to take her own life. So let's go back to the call. When her boyfriend refers to the network that she's having issues with, we would ask questions, well, why would she have issues with the network? And if she had issues with the network, why would she continue to deal with them? And if she had issues with the network, why would she continue to deal with them to release yet another show? Well, here's where we start to identify what could be her current stressors or triggers. She's working with the network. You know, she's creating a new show. And when we listen to or we saw the trailer for the new show, we hear her saying things like, I lost my family. I lost my dreams. Do I have to always be the angry black woman in every series? So clearly we see that her, you know, her dealings with the network is kind of making her uncomfortable with the state of, you know, that she's in and the way that she's being portrayed. But she has to work with the network because she needs money, right? So according to the reports, she and her boyfriend were residing in the Ritz-Carlton residence in L.A., which are luxury apartments that run about $25,000 a month. According to Media Takeout, one of Tamar's friends said that, you know, recently Tamar has lost millions because of COVID because she's unable to tour and her income has dropped to zero. So when you don't have any income and you're living in a place that's reported to cost $25,000 a month, that in and of itself, not being able to pay your bills and keep a roof over your head and potentially, you know, having to find someplace else to stay is a trigger. But then we see other underlying or possibly underlying unresolved uh, triggers in Tamar's life, right? So Here's some other things that Tamar may still be working through um, in addition to what she's going through right now. So let me go through this really quickly. Tamar grew up in a well-known church family. However, her father had a very public split with her mother after alleged infidelity. Tamar was discovered very young with her sisters, but her career never really took off initially. Her sister, Tony, on the other hand, became a superstar and she then fell into singing background for her sister. She's notorious for calling herself a doo pop pop girl. And, you know, she played this out very publicly on Braxton Family Values, stating that she didn't want to be in Tony's shadows anymore. So she's felt like, you know, we've seen her feel like that she's in the shadows of Tony. In 2017, it was alleged that she and ex-husband Vince narrowly escaped foreclosure on their home. And then more recently, just last year, she divorced her ex-husband, Vince, also the father of her son, who was also her manager and made main breadwinner in their family. So we really see that there are many stressors in Tamar's life, not the least of which is her strained relationship with her sisters. I mean, you can almost see the tension between um, the sisters escalating on each season of Braxton Family Values. It's so sad at this point because... You know, they're sisters, but they just have so much trauma from the years or from over the years and trauma that, you know, could have been escalated by the reality television show. And, you know, they have to live it out loud publicly. It's really sad because at this point, it seems like we're just piling trauma on top of trauma. You know, it feels like they're, the layers need to be peeled back so that there can be some true healing. And as if all this wasn't enough. 
Tamar's show with the network that she's having a problem with, Get Your Life, is still scheduled to air tonight, which I feel is a little tasteless and insensitive considering the current circumstances. But our thoughts and prayers are with Tamar and her entire family. Um, I think that both of these situations are very unfortunate. Um, and when we have people that are in the media, I think that a lot of people may think that they're on this like pedestal or they're untouchable or they have this God status when, you know, they are susceptible to pressure and stressors of any environment, just like anybody else's, um, and almost more so. So, you know, Tamar has a situation, and I hope that these material things that we've gone down the timeline um, and discussed um, aren't the factors that led her to, you know, be suicidal or have a break. Um, but, you know, these material things and people in the limelight that have to keep up a certain status or keep up a certain persona and live somewhere that costs them $25,000 a month, although they're not bringing any any income, I mean, that's a lot of stress. Um, and a lot of people, you know, care about what other people think about them. And because of that, that stress and that press, uh, that pressure, um, you know, can make some people, you know, very anxious about um, their lives and can make them uh, susceptible to harming themselves, which is unfortunate. And so I'm, I'm hoping that there's something deeper to this story than just those um, material things. But we have seen that time after time, a lot has been involved with material possessions and people basically t saying or thinking their worth is based off of those material things, which is, you know, absolutely not the case. In Kanye's situation, you know, that's a that's a completely different situation. You know, he has, you know, a mental illness. He's not getting treated properly for his mental illness because he's not taking his medications. And as a result, he's saying everything that he may feel guilty about out loud, right? Um, he's feeling guilty about, you know, saying that he, he thought his wife should have an abortion. I mean, there's a lot of people that, that thought that before they had children, and now they have them. Um, he's, you know, guilty about, hey, um, you know, I should have divorced Kim. And there's a lot of people that thought they should have divorced their husbands, or, <laughs> you know, but he's living this guilt out loud and his mental illness not being treated is, is not helping um, the situation. He even went as far to call his mother-in-law, Chris Jung-un. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking to myself is I, I agree with everything Nicole said. And as I was listening to the the audio of, of uh, Tamar's boyfriend again, I was just kind of taking notes. And I was thinking about, like, what's the accountability? So when I think of Tamar and I think of Kanye, for me, I'm like, what is the accountability of their family, of themselves? Um, you know, before we, we came on, we were kind of briefly discussing the audio of the, uh, the 911 call. And I was just thinking and listening to him talk, he is, it sounds like he too is thinking out loud. He's just saying, he's trying to process it and come up with an answer on the spot, even though he's calling in for help and he's doing the right thing. He's, he is out loud telling us everything. Kanye is trying to think out loud and come up with answers on the spot. And when we're not feeling well, that just sounds like stuff. It doesn't sound like anything. And so as the listener, I feel like I'm kind of like, so what are you trying to say? That's true. <laughs> are, you, are you trying to tell us that 
you've been worried about Tamar for a long time and that now you can finally help or are you trying to say like you knew about this maybe suicide attempt or this cry for help and you didn't do anything and so you feel guilty um is Kanye West there have been reports before about that he'll come off his medication when he starts to um make a new album and that makes him more creative so are we hearing Kanye West kind of question like what I'm gonna put like a positive been on this like is he questioning like what is the role of black people in america currently and what is the root of that right that sounds like a much more fruitful conversation than harriet tubman did for the slaves it, it's just like a lot out there and and the other thing that i was thinking about are protective factors right when you were talking about tamar's timeline that she has a lot of protective factors right so like um religion and church may have been a protective factor but that got uh, messed up with um, her dad's infidelity or just kind of family ties and how she perceives to be in her sister's shadow and then you know a uh, intimate relationship there's a divorce but she has a new relationship and then her kind of protective factor that he always talks about having lost is his mom and when you when you're having a crisis plus you don't have protective factors it is ripe for this kind of playing out loud for us all to kind of watch and be in like in shock and awe about. Um, and I'd like to add a little piece about Kanye and you're absolutely right. He was supposed to have released an album named after his mother on Friday. However, his fans were left a little disappointed because he didn't release the album as promised. So maybe he did come off of his meds to create this album. I mean, he did post a piece of uh, what looked like construction paper of him jotting down what was going to be on the album. It, that's what it appeared to be. Um, it's kind of unclear because it's not really legible. But maybe he, that is the reason that he was coming off of his medication so that he could be more creative for the said album. But the album actually never came out as it was supposed to. Because he's disorganized. But I was also thinking about how do you support, like, what are your thoughts about how do you support someone when they're going through this? Like as a family, what's that role look like? And like as a, as an intimate partner, so as a wife, a husband, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, as a child. I mean, that is a great segue just to break down um, the conversation a little bit further. And, you know, let's talk through this, um, you know, that situation and uh, some similar situations. So, you know, what is our role? Um, and I, I think that um, for family, it, it, that's a lot of pressure for the family. You know, I have had several people in my family either attempt suicide or commit suicide. And when you, you know, as a family member of somebody that's committed suicide, I mean, you live with that guilt um, for the rest of your life. And so, you know, what is the role of the family in that? Um, in my perspective, it's recognizing the signs, seeking help when you, when that person needs it. And um, if you, are listening and you have a family member that is that is going through that, you know, I would encourage you to to make them get help. Um, if you know that they are unstable, like you can force them to get help, at least temporarily. But at the same time, sometimes you just don't recognize the signs. And sometimes, you know, people can camouflage their feelings very, very well. And I just don't want anybody to feel any more guilty than they already feel. Um, so in my opinion, it is recognizing the signs, encouraging them to get help, um, and then, you know, basically being a support uh, system for them and, and talking them through 
uh, whatever situation they're going through and letting them know that they're valued. And then also, if you feel like a family member is possibly suicidal, you can always call suicidepreventionlifeline.org. The number is 1-800-273-8255. I wanted to say one other thing about like being a spouse. I don't, even as a psychiatrist, I think that when you want to intervene in someone's life, I think you got to think of what your role in their life is outside of this crisis. If it's your auntie that you don't really talk to that often and you only see it Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Easter, that's a different road to navigate than your husband that lives at your house. Absolutely. And, and you got to be respectful of that. You can make suggestions, but you got to understand that you cannot take on the sole burden of that because you're not the closest to that person and you may not understand what their true fears are. Um, and just kind of a pivot, you know, Tamar is not married to her current, um, her current spouse is when you're looking to partner with someone, these are the questions that like I'm interested in and that I ask folk about, like, so what runs in your family? Not a whole interview, but like, I want to know like mental illness, like what's that looking like in your family and in you? You, you ain't said nothing but a word. I definitely ask my husband and, you know, you know, have you ever had a psychological break? Not saying that you shouldn't date people that have had a psychological break, but you need to make sure that you do need to make sure your spouse is, you know, stable. Um, I ask, you know, my, my thing about dating, in addition to that, I also has the genetic history, but that's, that's neither here nor there. That's for a different conversation. So you all, I have a scenario that actually has a lot to do with this, right? So it is a letter from one of my friends that emailed us and asked us to talk about this when we asked about mental health questions. Can I share? Yes. Hi, ladies. I'm not sure if you're going to receive this in time, but I'm hoping that you'll respond because I could really use your feedback. My fiance, Derek, and I have been together for six years. He is truly my soulmate. We were planning on getting married in September, but much like 2020, we had to cancel. I would tell you the story of how we met, but that's not why I'm writing you ladies. So... I will spare you the details. Let me get to the point. Eric suffers from depression. This is nothing new. I've known for years, and honestly, it's brought us closer together because I've had a few bouts of depression myself. However, while we have been sheltering in place together, things seem to be a little bit different. Eric started exhibiting behaviors like I've never seen before. He seems to have a short fuse and gets super agitated and angry very suddenly. I find this strange, especially since my fiancé is usually extremely mild-mannered. One morning, Greg woke up and casually mentioned to me that he had thoughts of killing me, but he wasn't sure if it was a dream or a reality. Greg is becoming increasingly unpredictable, and recently he became so upset that he punched through one of his car windows and had to go to the ER. I guess this was for the best because while he was in the ER, the docs consulted with his psychiatrist and they determined that he was suffering from psychotic depression and they subsequently admitted him to a psychiatric facility. I'm writing to you ladies because I feel some uncertainty and it's truly causing me to second guess our relationship. At this point, I don't even know if I will feel safe when he returns home. I really want to stick by his side because he is the love of my life. But if he continues to have uncontrolled episodes, I'm not sure if I can stay. Should I leave? If so, when is it okay to leave? Please help. PWS, Sharice. 
Oh, Melissa, it's been a while since I've been in med school and done my psych rotation. So break break down for the people, psychotic depression. Okay. All right. So there is a diagnosis, and the, the long name of it is major depressive disorder, mild, moderate, severe, with it's typically severe, with psychotic features. And what that looks like is if you allow your depression to go on and to be undertreated or not treated at all, you'll start to have these longer and more intense depressive episodes. And you can start to have some psychotic features. What are psychotic features? Because that sounds scary. It means like you might start hearing things that you know are not real, but they feel very real. And a lot of times it's kind of negative talk, right? You're not a good person. You're a liar. You suck. You're never going anywhere in life. That gets louder. If you let this go on for even longer, you'll start to have some paranoia. So feeling like people are out to get you. And what you need to do is treat the underlying depression. And typically that improves. Sometimes you need some medication for the psychosis as well. Um, But what I heard in that is that he needs treatment immediately and doing it at home as an outpatient doesn't sound as though it's benefiting him or her. Um, she, and I wanted to say I appreciate her being honest because so many people suffer and don't say anything. Uh, when should you leave? Now? Yeah. Was, was now an option? Um, and when Absolutely. I say leave, I don't mean break up. I just mean like we need to give some physical space between the two of you because his negative self-talk, his ruminations kind of going over and over things in his mind are including you. And and you can't reason with that. Um, I'm glad you broke that down because, uh, you know, listening to Janine talk, I was thinking this doesn't sound like depression. It sounds more like schizophrenia. Um, So I'm glad that you did break that down. um, You know, basically that difference. Uh, And I agree. I think that she needs to leave and, maybe not permanently, but maybe so permanently if he is not going to get treated. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't date or marry anybody with psychosis, but I think if they're having these thoughts, um, you know, of killing you, that's dangerous for your life. And so I, I do think that you should date or marry somebody with psychosis that's not treated because then that's a detriment to you. Boom. Sounds like an answer. But I, I do want to say that, you know, you don't, what I've been telling myself and telling my patients and telling my family is I'm trying to not make lifelong decisions during this pandemic because everything feels like it is on a very need to know now, need to have answers right now about everything. And I just have come to the realization, like, I just, I don't have the capacity for that. Um, And so if I were her, I would just, create some space between us, maybe go um, live somewhere else or stay somewhere else. And you don't have to decide if you want to break up with him because it is a pandemic and you probably have spent more time with him face to face than you ever have in your life. But you need not be somewhere where someone is talking about they want to kill you. No, but real talk though, like you really have to leave, like not a joke, but you really just got to get out of there. Like, I don't know that I would be able to stay and say like, oh, I'm going to like ride out for you. I don't even know that that exists in my mind. The moment that you said you thought about killing me, I'm out. But you should be. And and that's what I would like to bring it back full circle to what I was talking about earlier is accountability, right? Just because you have mental illness doesn't mean that we get to blame your mental illness for all things 
ridiculous that come out of your mouth or behaviors that are inappropriate. No, and not the case. Just because I know the why behind something doesn't make me feel more comfortable with it. It just means I know the why. So if you're talking about wanting to kill me, I don't care if that's because you hear voices or are sad or you have murderous beliefs. I ain't got to be around for that. And I don't want to be. And we've heard it now from the psychiatrist because a lot of people think, no, seriously, a lot of people may have um, somebody that they're dating and they have a mental illness. And so they're like, I'm not going to leave him because then I'll be the bad person because this person, I know he suffers from a mental illness. And so they're beating themselves up and making excuses for poor behavior because they know that person has a mental illness. And so they stick around more often when somebody has a mental illness than when they don't. This makes me think about, um, and you see it a lot in kind of young adult relationships of someone saying, if you leave me, I'm going to kill myself. And people really feeling like they have some kind of control as to whether or not someone kills themselves. Something I was taught in the beginning of my psychiatry uh, education was that I have no control over the behaviors of someone else. That sounds weird, right? Like, because as a psychiatrist, I was like, yes, before I got into it, like, yes, I can like make people do things. And no, I can't. I can make suggestions. I make recommendations. I, you know, increase the number of people involved in the care. But if someone is dead set on wanting to kill themselves, your leaving or staying isn't going to change that. They've already made that decision. And I, I realize that doesn't sound very nice to give people the warm and fuzzies, but that's the truth. You know, same with any, any other type of mental illness, like substance abuse or, you know, obesity. If I want to eat, I'm going to eat. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, you could tell me like, you know, Melissa, you're really getting fat and, you know, I have concerns about your cholesterol and your blood pressure. And I'd be like, yeah, I, you know, I'm aware. And still eat. And then try to include you in it, right? That's the same idea. So do you want a number three? <laughs> right. Before we, you know, before we move on to any other situation, you know, Melissa brought up a, a an obvious truth. You know, like nowadays, you do have a lot of young people when they're dating if they're upset or angry, they're going to threaten to kill themselves. You know, it's almost like attention-seeking behavior in some instances. So if you're listening, if you've ever said that, don't say, don't do that anymore. Like, do not say that anymore just to get attention. Um, and some people, you know, looking at the comments on the Tamar story, you know, a lot of people think she did that to get attention. You know, it, is that attention-seeking behavior because she, you know, is in the shadows of, her sister, or she has going through, gone through a lot of negativity and she needs something to sort of highlight just her. I would hope that's not the case, but I do think a lot of people, especially young people, when they're in these relationships, they can be very, you know, toxic and then they're threatening to, to kill themselves. I mean, I've heard several people tell me, oh, my child is in a relationship and, you know, his 13-year-old girlfriend, I mean, him, he's 13, his 13-year-old girlfriend threatened to kill herself. You know, please, you know, that is an extreme. If you are in that relationship, like you need to basically make sure that they get help and probably distance yourself until that person gets help and they're stable. Tamar believes she's been in Tony's shadow. I don't know that Tony and Tamar are the same type of performer. I don't think that she's in her shadow at all, just as a bystander watching them. But that's her perception of it. Yep. And so her mood, her responses are her perception of it 
because I every time I hear her say that, I kind of cringe. Like, ooh, I don't think I don't think y'all the same. Not that right. you're not good, not the same. But but think about what her life is like, though, right? So yes, we see it as possibly being attention seeking, but it's kind of like how I say, you know, how I think about Michael Jackson. Like he grew up in, he doesn't know anything else but the limelight. And Tamar's life is pretty similar. They were, you know, when she was a child, a little child, she was a a notorious church family, right? And then they got discovered, the sisters were discovered, and then Tony was discovered, and she's been in the limelight ever since. So, yes, while we see it maybe as attention-seeking, it's still very much her life. That is her existence. Being in the limelight is Tamar's existence. From performing and singing with her sisters to being a background singer for Tony to being a reality television star. I mean, her life is the limelight. Right. Everybody can't take that kind of pressure. And so you have to know what kind of pressure you can take and what kind you can't take. And so when people tell me, Oh my God, you should be on reality TV. I don't want that kind of pressure. Like that's not, I don't want my business lived out loud. And we have a choice in that. Like you don't have to be in the limelight. She's an adult now. So I understand that she's used to that, but you have to also sit and think like, is this good or is this bad? You know, am I, you know, is this good attention or is this bad attention? And some people argue any attention is good attention. The marketing brain in me says just that. Like if we say all attention is good attention because you you have eyes on you. Right. But everybody can't take that kind of pressure. You know, everybody, you know, the things that you said, in, even in our timeline, in the timeline on the story, like, okay, she's, she's uh, going through the divorce. She thinks she's in Tony's shadow. She's, you know, financially, you know, not well off right now or struggling right now because she's not having income since March. Like a lot of people deal with that. Like common folks dealt with that, right? I know people that are divorced. I know people are welfare. I know people, I know people that have gone through a lot worse, right? But it's the kind of pressure and it's the fact that it's lived out loud. It's just not for everybody. And I hate that it came down to this situation. And that's why I say, I hope it's something, you know, it probably is something deeper than just what we've read on the timeline. I think so too. I guess with Kanye, he has since apologized uh, to Kim on Twitter. So he's kind of trying to make amends for what he's done. I don't know that Tamar needs to. You know, if we talk about her living out loud and that that's probably outside of her capacity to do so, then she need not come back and apologize to anybody. I understand like doing an interview and explaining like how you felt and saying that you've overcome it, but apologize, you're going to apologize for hurting yourself. Mm-mm. I think that it would be more of a, it would be more useful to the fans to show that she's healthier, to show that, hey, now I'm good and I'm on the right track, or even to just take a step back and, you know, take a break. I think that that's too much. Again, that's more pressure for her to come out and make a statement and live out loud when she's not completely well enough to do so. And so um, I don't agree that she should make a statement. I think that. Whenever she's treated, um, if she wants to do an interview to talk about what she was going through, I think that that would suit her fans better. My two cents, my opinion, obviously. I agree. Um, I don't think we owe people anything. That mm-hmm. That's what the pandemic has taught me is I don't owe anyone anything. Only The only person I feel like I owe something to that I have to is the, the person I birth. That's right. And, and even with her, I'm limiting all of the energy that I give to her because 
I cannot give her everything and then have nothing for myself. So then that, that the next day there's nothing at all. And it's a bad day. I, I just, I hope that she gets the help that she needs. She finds the support that she needs. Um, and you know, attention seeking always has this like negative connotation. Um, it, it sounds bad, right? But it, it is what it is, right? It's I need help. So I said something or I did something that made the cavalry come, you know? And, and so it, it's, it's not, the phrase is not negative. It's just people hear it and think that it's a lack of validation of what that person's going through. I just want her to heal. I think the best way to show people you're doing better is to do better. Do better. Let Absolutely. People let yeah. people know. This. And, and they can, they can, <laughs> they can get on or they can, they can get going. Like hmm. word. I don't know if it's time to pivot there, but it makes me think of, of, of a patient that I was thinking about this morning before getting on is I have an 80 year old black female who suffers from depression and anxiety. And she is caring for her husband who's a little bit older than her and has medical problems and isn't able to care for himself as well as she has a son with severe mental illness um, who she also takes care of. And she's 80. A lot of what she struggles with is how can she be there for her husband and her son? And I say to her so many times, you can't. At 80, how are we still expected to live up to the expectations that we set for ourselves back when we were 20? And so I, it made me think of that patient, um, and it, which makes me think of Tamar is, yeah, she grew up like that, but that might not be who you are now. You may not be able to fulfill the beliefs you had of what you should be doing before in present day. Well, you know, when I talk to my husband about just that, you know, as you age and if you're aging with somebody and you're going to have to eventually take care of that person, you know, one, you got to set pretty realistic expectations. So if you have the means, you should probably hire some help. And if you don't have the means, you should probably apply for some help because there there's home health and assistance like that that can come and help you. Um, especially if you are, you know, low income. When my um, grandfather went on hospice, you know, my grandmother was like trying to take care of him and she's like wearing herself out. She couldn't pick him up and put him in the tub. And then he didn't want her to see her, you know, didn't want, you know, I don't want you cleaning me up after I have a bowel movement. I mean, you know, older people can be very honorary. You know, we had to, you know, tell her, hey, there are benefits that you can apply for because, you know, obviously I'm not from a well-to-do background. And we did. And she was a lot, um, you know, she was relieved when somebody came in a couple of times a day. And then when she had like basically around the clock nursing for him to help him go back and forth to the restroom and to help him, you know, take a bath and things like that. And, and, and he was better off, too, because then he didn't have to be ashamed of, you know, oh, my wife is wiping my butt after I have a bowel movement or I've urinated on myself. You know, he didn't have to be ashamed of those things um, in front of my grandmother. So um, I do think people may not know about the resources that are available. Um, but if you're listening and you're in a situation, there are resources available. And it doesn't matter how much you make that can come in and help you. But I tell my husband all the time, we're going to put these these little coins aside because somebody's going to have to come in and help us later because I'm not about to throw out my back. 
And I also tell him, you know, we need to be a little healthier now. I mean, we're, he's in his, he's 35. Yes, I'm a cougar. I've married down. I've married a younger man. But, <laughs> but, you know, he has some, you know, he's like pre-diabetic now. So he is working on himself and trying to make sure he's living a healthier life because I'm like, hey, these are risk factors for some bad stuff to come. And so you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself so that I'm not in a situation where I have to figure out what I need to do to take care of you. So I'm glad you brought that situation up. Thank you. And then I, the other piece of it, though, is that he's so embarrassed to have depression. Um, as a black female, as a, um, a very devout Catholic, like she just, re- it really bothers her to the point where she doesn't want to see me for telemedicine appointments because her family member has to help her with logging on. Nice. Yeah. And she doesn't want her family to know. Yeah. And so she's okay. like, well, Dr. Rector, when can I come in to see you? And I'm like, we, we're going to figure it out. I'm not having you and your whole 80 year old self come to the office to get sick so that we can avoid the, um, the negative looks and thoughts of your family members. It's just not worth it. I was going to say that is very similar to the situation. That's on my, like my, like let's talk through it. Same exact scenario, except for, you know, obviously this person is not 80 and they're not a devout Catholic. So I guess, we can talk about both of these situations at the same time. So my scenario, someone came to me for advice. She has a history of depression like your patient does, Melissa. Um, and she doesn't want to be seen by a psychiatrist at all or her mental health professional at all because her family is super religious. Um, so whenever she shares uh, her feelings with her mother, her mother tells us just to pray about it. And so she says her mother says that God doesn't create a spirit of depression And so she's not sure really what to do. Um, And so these scenarios are a little similar in that both of them have some type of embarrassment or stigma that's associated with getting proper mental health counseling or treatment. And both of them are highly religious. So what advice would you give our listeners that may be going through something similar that are, you know, Christians? Um, so I get posed with this a lot and it's interesting cause I get, I get asked this question more outside of my office than inside my office. And maybe it's because they never make it there. Right. Um, is I don't, I don't, I guess I don't think of those two things as mutually exclusive. Like I can be religious and spiritual and still believe in seeking help. Um, I, I want to start off with, I am no theologian. Okay. And I'm actually working on improving my relationship um, with God. And I feel like that is very much being tested during this pandemic. When I don't get, For all of get us. To, yeah, get to check box. I went to church and I sat there and I was attentive and I didn't do anything else while they were talking. It, that it, That's not happening now. So, But what I tell patients in the way that I think of it is that if if you're a Christian and you read about the stories of Jesus and what he did. One is when it came to exposing or showing people his miracles, he didn't do all of them at one time, Mm. which he very could have. Right. Yeah. But he, he waited and used his abilities when it was necessary. 
he wasn't there to just save people like whoa you look like you're struggling like let me help you you know like a magician of some sort um but very much was when it was needed so i use that example to talk about we need to reserve ourselves for the longevity of life the other piece that i think of is that again no theologian but i don't remember reading in the bible where someone succeeded by doing it by themselves I don't know that story. And so when I hear people talk about, well, I'm not going to a psychiatrist, just pray about it. I believe in the power of prayer. I also believe in the power of it, of expanding your community and causing and allowing for variety of that community. Like your church family is awesome, but let's include your church family. Let's include your work family. Let's include your biological family, your friends, and also a licensed provider. Like, why can't that all be a part of your support network? And so that's how I couch it in the in the way of why can't you have both? Why wouldn't you want to have both? And then when I when people meet me, I tell them I'm Catholic. I I believe in the Lord. I pray. I, I have similar struggles with, you know, being a good person and making sure that when you meet me, you meet God. So by not seeing me and not even wanting to hear what I have to say, I don't know that that's being a Christian. I agree. Um, I'm not a theologian either, but I am a preacher's grandchild, a pastor's grandchild, and come from several generations of preachers in a Pentecostal church, which if anybody knows anything about Pentecostal um, religion, it's very strict, right? So... And it's also um, it's also very conducive to being secretive about problems or issues that you may be going through in your personal life. So the one thing from my um, from, you know, my childhood and let, let me be very clear. I was raised by, you know, a generation of preachers and missionaries, blah, 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 blah. Right. But our family believes in counseling. Let's let me just be very clear about that, that, you know, it might not have been something that was generally accepted by the Pentecostal religion. However, my immediate family, we believe in counseling. But it actually reminds me of a scripture, which is really random that I recall it because Jesus knows I need to read the Bible more. But James 217, it says faith without works is dead. So you can have all the faith that you want, but things happen. So you have to work on it just like you work on anything else. You need to work on your your mental health as well. So you can't just believe that, you know, pray and believe that God is going to heal you. God, God will heal you. However, you have to do your part too. And seeking help is a very real option for doing your part. Like we can't, like, you know, Melissa, like you said, God is not some magician. It's not like hocus pocus and boom, you know, you're fixed. You have to do your part. When I talk about religion and Christianity, I mean, this is like an everyday part of my life. I mean, my husband's a minister, so and anybody that knows me knows that I'm going to, I'm direct. I'm not going to sugarcoat too much of anything, even if it's not like the church talk. You know, my husband's like, oh, you know, oh, you've learned some church talk. <laughs> he says that whenever I start quoting scripture. But I always tell him when he does a lot of counseling, he does, you know, individual counseling and marital counseling and premarital counseling and he does counsel a lot of people that may be going through things psychologically. And I tell him, you need to tell people that they can have, they can have Jesus and a psychiatrist at the same time. Like they can have both of those things. And, you know, God uses people's gifts 
And if you have that gift of helping people through their mental state, like that is God's gift. And so it's okay to talk to a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist um, to help improve your mental state because that's their gift. And, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. He made these professionals for reason. And some people comment that, oh, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about depression. And I did not create the feeling of depression or anxiety. But it's a lot of scriptures in there about God giving you peace. So if we're not talking about, if the Bible is not talking about depression, like, how do we need to keep on getting peace? You know, why are we talking about unrest in the Bible and peace in the Bible and trusting God and, you know, not leaning on your own understanding? I would say, hey, the Bible is filled with a lot of people that are going through a lot of stuff that maybe they didn't call depression, but you can't tell me the one with the issue of blood wasn't depressed. Yeah, she was. Had to be. Yeah. Anybody in the situation would be. Yes. But I like that. I like that, Nicole, that you can have Jesus and a psychiatrist at the same time. Because, you know, I think that people just think that, you know, if you have if you have a psychiatrist, then it must mean that your relationship with God in some way is flawed. That's not the case. And and here's the thing. If you have, how is a mental illness any different than a regular illness? If you get sick and catch the flu or COVID-19, you go to the hospital, right? And see a specialist that can help you with that. So why is your mental illness any different? Because you can just will yourself into um, be feeling better. That's what I hear from patients. Um, but there's so much suffering in the Bible when people tell me like there's no depression in the Bible, I kind of go, I mean, did you read it? Right, I, right. This is my own philosophy in the way that I practice psychiatry. Is I tell everyone, I'm not a pill pusher, I'm not a pill pusher, and I wouldn't do anything for you. I wouldn't do for my own family and my own self. You know, and I think that that's what's a lot of people's fears is that if they go to the psychiatrist, then you're automatically going to walk away with medication. And I don't think that that's the case. And I don't. I don't think that that's how you should practice medicine in any specialty that you came to my office and I definitely gave you something to walk away with, i.e. medication, a bandage, uh, a something. I just, I think that that is not, that's not how I'll speak for the people who are in my age group. So Nicole included, like we weren't taught like that. And some people get mad because of that. Like they, they expect to come in and get a pill to fix, to fix them. And it, it doesn't work like that. Absolutely. Oh, it, and I'm, I'm always like, I'm trying, you are an expert in you and I'm trying to get to know you and to understand you. And, and that's all that I can do. And so I do have, so I mostly see children, but I do have adults that I see and it is very difficult for the adults because a lot of them feel pressured by their family and friends and what they will think of um, the treatment that they're receiving, which is interesting because when I see kids, parents are pretty good at making like um, clear and concise and consistent decisions for their kids, whatever that is, right? Meds, no meds, therapy, no therapy, educational testing, accommodations, like all of that. Parents are awesome at that. Now ask them about themselves. Wow. Never thought about that. It is, it it is amazing to me and that's given me the platform. So I'm going to keep talking is that I think during this pandemic is that we're, I, I don't know about you all. 
I am seeing a rise of everyone going through some type of mental crisis and chronic questioning of their decisions. And, you know, it, it is, it is for me, it is a lot because we are all experiencing the same trigger and trauma at the exact same time. And there's no escape of it. Coronavirus, I can't escape to Australia, to Europe. You know, I'm gonna just go to the Caribbean on the beach for a little bit and I'll be good and I'm gonna come back. No, it's everywhere. And so I am anticipating seeing more breakdowns and mental crises and crises of thought um, to just keep going because this is going. So, Melissa, before we get into our something new, you know, if anybody is, uh, you know, wanting to see you or reach out to you, um, you, go ahead and share your contact information. Give them your what's coming up on Melissa Macklin Rector's spectrum. All right. So um, my personal email address that I use is MelissaRectorMD at gmail.com. You can find me on Insta at psychiatrist mel um is my professional one um and i'm trying to get better at using that platform more especially in the idea of i don't go to the office as much um what's coming up for me is you know honestly i don't know i'm taking this day by day so i i didn't mention i work in um i work in a federally qualified health center which is in um in fifth ward houston fifth ward area of houston but i also work at a school so I'm trying to figure out what does that look like um, with school starting. And also I um, I run a, a support group, um, a psychotherapy group for teachers. So I've been trying to figure out what does that look like remotely. So I'm trying to, what's next for me is to figure out how can I continue to be effective without being in person. Um, so that's what I got going on. And then I have a daughter who, you know, this was, Kindergarten was supposed to start. You know, I was ready for the pictures and the Aww. chalkboard. Um, and, you know, what does that look like for her? Uh, so that's what I got going on. Um, I'm excited, though. I, I I really am excited about what this year looks like. And, and I really, it brings a smile to my face to think about in 20 years, we are going to be talking about this. Right. And we're, we're going to be talking about how resilient we were. Absolutely. And, and just all this stuff. And so it, it actually, as I'm talking about, it's bringing tears to my eyes because I just think so much about we, I love history. I read so much about, you know, things that have happened before. And I think like, how did they make that work? You know, and, and we're living that. How are you making it work? Mm. That's deep. That's Melissa. a dope perspective. I mean, definitely. When you, when you think back about, you know, 9-11 and then, you know, and Hurricane Katrina and, you know, the things that we have done and gone through in our lifetime. It, it is, it's pretty amazing. Since we've known each other. I mean, right. I mean, seriously, 9-11 was our freshman year of college. Yeah. And I remember, you know, kind of like Melissa said earlier, it, it hit different when I was in New Orleans and I'm from a military family from D.C. So it was, you know, traumatic. 9-11, then Hurricane Katrina. You all lived through that in New Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah. And now 
a pandemic. Who would have ever thought in a million years that we would live through a pandemic? Ever. Crazy. And then for Houston locals, I mean, like Hurricane Harvey was a huge deal, man. Wow, it was yeah. right after. Yes. It was like boom, boom, boom. It, wow. it, it has been a lot, um, but I also think about how amazing it has been, right? The positives, like seeing the first black president yeah. in the 20 years. Nothing's going to ever beat that. Yeah, I um, I don't know why I got so emotional about this. Woo. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I encourage everyone listening and the three of us to write down, write down how you feel. You know, I think about how cool it is to write, to read letters from someone who went through the Great Depression or yeah. who went through um segregation this is this is the moment when people are writing right when you're writing about how i'm afraid to go to the grocery store so i get my groceries delivered and then i wipe every single piece every grocery every food item down with a clorox wipe story of my life every day every day yes um and how the shelves are out of stuff and i cleaned my bathtub with toilet cleaner because it had bleach and stuff in it because I couldn't find any for a long time. Or with vodka. Yeah. Write that down. Sorry. Hmm. I didn't mean to, to take us on a tangent. No, that's good. That's good, though. So now we're going to go into what did we learn new this week? So, Janine, what did you learn new this week? So while I was doing my research on um, Minority Mental Health Month, I came across a statistic that I found alarming. And then when I told Nicole, Nicole was like, yep, that sounds pretty normal. But this is what I learned. So um, the National Institutes of Mental Health says that approximately one in five Americans suffer with mental illness. I learned that there are a lot of online virtual counseling apps that are available if people, you know, don't want to see somebody in person, per se, because they're afraid of the pandemic. And there are different ones that cater to different things, right? So there's counseling sessions that cater directly to the LGBTQ community and dealing with psychological issues. There's teens and, uh, you know, counseling for psychological issues. There's peer support groups and counseling for psychological issues. I had no idea there were so many different platforms for virtual counseling. Nicole, take us out. And your motivational moment for the week. When you feel like giving up, just remember the reason why you held on for so long. And then once you remember, seek help immediately. And so just in case the listeners miss the National Suicide uh, Prevention Lifeline, I just want to make sure everybody knows it is 1-800-273-8255. And that is 24-7 confidential support if you are suffering, suffering and having thoughts of harming yourself or if you know anybody else that has those thoughts, um, please encourage them to seek help. Until we meet again, pray, work, slay, and show off your melanated excellence. Thank you, Melissa. Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations is produced and hosted by Nicole Lee Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations on Facebook and IG at Oh, That's Deep, BWC. Oh, That's Deep, Black Women Conversations is a five times media production. You 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.